You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where... We interrupt this broadcast with a special news announcement. New York City and major cities around the globe have been attacked from a giant flying robot army, leaving the world in disarray. Because of this, the nations have turned once again to Sky Captain, who has teamed up with plucky reporter Polly Perkins to search out the mysterious robots as well as the reason for the disappearance of famous scientists around the world. This is Radio Dispatch, Emergency Protocol 90306. Polly Sky Captain, come in, Sky Captain. What just happened? But apparently, um, robots under attack. Um, I'm Matt. This is the 602 Club, and Darren. It's good to have you here. Uh, should we get to the bomb shelter? Or I'm just really worried about Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson. Where have they been taken? Ah, <laughs> uh, that is a good question. That's a good question. Um, Megan, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, hopefully. In Arizona, you have some sort of fallout shelter you can go to? Um, what? I'm sorry. I was distracting hiding these two vials in my pocket. I don't know oh, what you're talking about. okay. Okay. I don't oh, know what you're goodness. talking about. She's well, a um, agent. Yeah. Hopefully, nobody will find those because I hear that um, they're important. So, well, if you haven't figured out, we do have a subject that we're going to talk about tonight here on the 602 Club. And it's going to be fun. Um, one of the things that I, I love about doing this show is the opportunity maybe sometimes to introduce a, a film or a TV show or something that people may not have seen. And one of the things, one of the films that I really fell in love with over the last you know 10 years or so was a movie called Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. And it was a movie that um, it, I... I had never seen anything like this before, and I don't think, honestly, none of us really had. It was very, very unique, and I really want to to get an opportunity just to share it with you today, and um, maybe for the first time, so if you haven't seen it, I hope you'll go watch it after you listen to this, and if you have seen it, well, you're in luck because that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and so kind of wanted to um, start off by talking about that first time that you saw the film and and when that was and kind of what made you go see it for the first time because it's not a movie that ended up doing very well in the theaters even though it got over 70 percent good reviews on on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Megan when was the first time that you kind of encountered Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow? Well, I remember um, I remember seeing previews for it when it was in the theater, and I really wanted to see it in the movie theater. Uh, but my husband, Matt, went and saw it without me and didn't particularly care for it. So um, the first time I actually watched it was last night in preparation for this podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, I mean, what's great about that, though, is that I think you'll have a completely, you know, different experience than obviously that I had. So that's great. I love that you just saw it. Um, so you know, your first time, just first impression of the movie. Um, you know, right off the bat, I was just kind of drawn into it and really into the world that they created. And I think it's one of the better film intros that I've seen in a long time. 
Um, they do a great job of dropping you into the world, but you don't feel completely alienated. And then they slowly reveal these characters to you. And then you go on an Indiana Jones style adventure, um, which is just it's just great and solid the whole way through, I thought. What about you, Darren? When was uh, your first time to encounter Sky Captain? So yeah, I've the the opposite where I saw it uh, theatrically when it came out in two thousand four, and it it when I first yeah saw the the previews for it, it struck me a lot in the same way uh, that Titan AE did, which was in two thousand. Just something different, you know. I don't I, I don't think that was as a successful a movie either, uh, but just it had a similar quality where you're like, oh, I want to j- jump into this world. You know, the look. Uh, I remember there were a lot of articles around, you know, how it was filmed and put together, which, of course, was interesting to me as I was in film school at the time. And, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a, a great ride. And uh, and for the techniques they used, it held up really well for being a no-set movie. I mean, it, it actually, they did a really good job with that. So, yeah, I've, I really enjoy I think I have it on DVD, and now that it's on Netflix, it's even easier to watch. So this was one of those strange coincidences for me that um, I actually got to go see a screening of it before it was officially released, which, uh, you know, I really didn't know much about the movie. I, you know, I'd seen the trailer when it uh, was there in the theaters, and... Um, but I remember going in and I fell in love like with this movie. I fell in love with its look. I fell in love with everything ab- about it. You know, it, it was just so much pure joy. Like it, it, it just kind of captured that that sense of what it must have been like to go to the movies at, in the 1930s and see one of those serial films. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, actually. That's a perfect point. They did a great job of capturing that style of filmmaking, I think. Well, and that's, you know, it's such a hard thing to do, and it reminds me of of exactly what I think Indiana Jones does or, you know, Star Wars does, is it, it makes you feel like you're watching something that's from another era, as if you kind of just pulled it off, you know, a shelf, you pulled out the reel, ran it through um, the film projector, and, you know, fired it up, and nobody had seen it before, and I think that's one of the things that just really stood out to me, and I just respond to that kind of thing anyway, that the nostalgia, I really enjoy old films, you know, I really love films such as, um, you know, Casablanca is my favorite movie, and so things of that nature really speak to me anyway. And so this film just immediately had me hooked, which I, you know, that doesn't happen a lot. And um, I'm just so, I was just so excited when I came out of it and, you know, wanted to tell everybody about it. You have to go see this movie. It's so much fun. And then, of course, I mean, never seen anything like this before, you know, because in a lot of ways... It's it looks like it looks like a CG movie with real people like it, it, it but they're real. And I don't mean that as a is not a compliment to the movie, but I mean, it, it just everything, you know, works so well and, and seamlessly. I was just so surprised. And so, um, yeah, this was a movie that for me, I was immediately captivated by and became a fan of and. Uh, you know, have shared with quite a few people, you know, over the years, especially once it came out on DVD and then Blu-ray, if, hey, have you seen Sky Captain? You need to see this movie. Yeah, it's definitely one of those films where it's easy to become a proponent for it. And, you you, you know, you can quickly tell, oh, I think you'd like this movie, you know, amongst your group of friends and have them, you know, pop it in or or, you know, give it a, a download, but, and it's got, you know, big name stars in it too. It's not just like this indie little picture with, you know, Mr. No Name and, and what's their face, you know, it's actually got, you know, and it's funny because again, I think back in, in 2004, you know, we had yet to take off on this comic book rocket. So you have like Gwyneth Paltrow, who's now, you know, you know, in the Iron Man Marvel franchise, like this is almost kind of 
you know, I could look at back at this as uh, her kind of taking a half step in that direction, uh, you know, which is a good thing because, you know, she's great in all those films. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with that. You can really see her kind of breaking into the whole action adventure genre with this movie. And I think she did a pretty good job with it. Well, I I completely agree. I mean, it's one of those things that it's so cool about her and was watching the extras last night and she was saying, you know, I read the script and I loved everything about it. You know, I, I, I heard the idea and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so, yeah, having somebody like her and Jude Law and all these other people that are, are all throughout this film be involved in this tiny little movie that we'll talk about later. I mean, started off on a Macintosh 2 um, you know, who would have thought that we'd get here? And and I think it turns into be something so awesome. And and we talked about a little bit the story and, and kind of want to talk a little bit about the story time of this film, you know, that it does have that 1930s serial film. And it, it feels like a combination of those sci-fi comics and the action adventure comics kind of, you know, thrown together all into one yeah, it thing. It's it's like a living 1930s comic book, um, and, but done and with just, way better special effects than yeah, we've ever seen before. Yeah. I mean, awesome! It it just it blew it blows my mind the things that they're able to do in this movie. Well, and one of my favorite parts of the the story is just you know the giant robots kidnapping scientists. I mean, that's just. This, that sentence right there is is classic, you know, pulp story. But, you know, I, I picked up on the reference that they placed in. Uh, you know, I saw that old Superman cartoon, which had, you know, the giant robots that would fly and rob the banks and, you know, shoot the lasers out of their eyes. And I'm like, these look just like those. And they're so cool. And, you know, I'm like, you know, you had me at giant robots with winged skulls on their chest. I mean, I was I was done. I'm in. I'm really disappointed that I didn't see this sooner. Um, I really don't know why it took me more than 10 years to watch this movie. I should have I should have jumped on that bandwagon a long time ago because like you said, giant robots kidnapping scientists. I am there for sure. It's like Pacific Rim's grandfather. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ooh, we'll talk about that film another time. Oh, yeah, we should. That's a that's a rant I could go on for a while. Um that is, I think, the the most amazing thing about this is just how much of it, it it's like a love letter to those 1930s serials. Um, you know, uh, you got classic elements you might see in a Bond movie, you know, a villain who's bent on destruction and... Uh, you know, but he's going to save part of the world that he believes in. Uh, you know, you've got your flawed but lovable hero, very much like an Indiana Jones style guy or Han Solo. Uh, the uh, the girl there that's by his side, you know, that's that's following along, and and then you have you know even your Q kind of character from Bond with Dex, and except that he creates ray guns, so that's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely, you know, reminded me a lot of the uh, Armand Bashir episode of Deep Space Nine, which again, obviously, you know, pays a lot to this style. Um, But also just the more recent film, like The Artist, which was, you know, Mm -hmm. the same style of we're going to tribute this probably a little bit before this period. This is more 30s, 40s. That would be more like 20s age of sound. But but still very, very similar uh, to recreate the look. And, you know, I mean, yes, if you don't like sepia-ish tones, it may not be the right movie for you. But, uh, you know, everyone's got a sepia tone on their phone now. So, you know, it's, you could you <laughs> Yeah, can we get use it on Instagram. It. There so, you go. Yeah. It's I my mean, favorite filter. Yeah, everybody loves it. So, yeah, you everybody, I think, would just love this film if they gave it a chance. Because, you know, the other th- cool thing about it is that you see here... You know, like this is—it has proto helicarriers from Marvel's cinematic universe. Those things were amazing. It's so awesome. I mean, all of that stuff. I mean, that's like what we expected if they had pulled it straight out of the comic. I mean, they they turned it. Yes, I liked what they did with it. In you know what we actually got, where it's more like an aircraft carrier with engines bolted on it. But yeah, that's you know 
the impracticality of a comic <laughs> drawn, mm-hmm. you know, helicarrier is what we got in Sky Captain. You didn't, and the best thing about Sky Captain was you didn't just get one awesome airship. You got a whole fleet of them by the end of the movie. Giant British flags. Yeah, they looked incredible. I loved them so much. That's probably one of my favorite things from the movie. And and I think what what is so awesome and what we're really talking about is how the story here isn't hampered by, okay, what, what can we do? Because you can do anything. And so your imagination just gets to run free as a creator. And, you you know, if it's in a comic book, no matter how silly it is, you can throw it in there and make it work with a film like this. And I'm really just surprised that we haven't seen more movies that have tried this because it works. You know, the, the, the uber ridiculousness of giant flying robots and you know android people and uh helicarriers in the air and you know planes that can fall out of the sky and turn into submarines it all works here because it fits within the genre of the 1930s action adventure sci-fi serial where everything is is um is available everything's in 11 it's just yeah it's 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 it's, it's maxed out Exactly. The Hindenburg is turned up to three. Yeah, the Hindenburg is turned up to three, which got to be one of the cool scenes. And and I remember reading um, something about that, that when the Hindenburg docks there, that's actually what the top of the Empire State Building was modeled for. Yeah. And yet it was impossible to do because of the wind shear that high no up. Idea. Yeah, that's actually what it was made for. Um, although it was never going to happen because you just can't pull a blimp in and keep it steady enough to let people on board without dying. Wow. <laughs> well, and, you know, I guess it'd be a little tricky if you haven't actually seen the movie, but, you know, like we've been describing, this entire film was created in green screen but not like we think of now in green screen but literally there's nothing in the room but maybe a, a single prop or or whatever they physically have to work with but th- instead of using that as like a stopgap measure you know the artists they they built the entire world on that and i think because they set a tone a look to the film and then it's the entire entirety of it is that look that's what helps it hold together because so many times when you know you can't say oh well is that real versus that's not well it's all not (laughs) so so you know it's as long as you make it look real enough you can you you can slip into the you know past the suspension of disbelief and just and then you just go along for the ride well and they did such a great job of animating and drawing that world i mean the special effects still look really good by today's standards i ha- i was shocked when i looked it up earlier and realized it had been made in 2004 it's 11 years old and it still looks really good yeah i completely agree with you i i don't think that there's really anything about this film when you sit back and watch it and you think oh that just looks terrible and i think what's great about what they did with the the way that they created the film is that I think it'll continue just to age well because of the way it just blends together because of the way they deconstructed everything and then they would build it back up in the computer. They're compositing it all together so that it looks pretty seamless and you're not feeling, you know, the only thing that will get, uh, yeah, I honestly, I don't, I just, I don't think it's not going to continue to age well because really it's just like a, a moving, art deco poster you know um it's like moving panels in a in a comic book and that's what's so awesome about it um this was we were talking about this is something that was completely new um this is even before green screen they're just using blue screen uh before they everybody moves to green screen and they like darren you mentioned they would just have props that they would touch so if they're going to touch something they it had to be real because it it was too difficult at that point to do all the work that you needed. And even now, that's why people wear the green suits, you know. So if you're going to fight with them and you're going to touch them, it, it so they have something real, physical you're touching, so it, it looks more realistic. Um, but yeah, I mean, they had to, they literally shot the entire movie 
before they went to London, where they actually filmed on the Star Wars soundstage, George Lucas soundstage there at S3 Studios. And so that they would know exactly where the camera needed to be and exactly where the character needed to be and how far they needed to move so that when they put them in the shot digitally, everything would work. So they made this movie like three times before they actually made it, which is just incredible to think that um, Kerry Conran had never, ever made a film before. Like, just insane. That's pretty good for your your first film. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and he did a great job directing um, his all-star cast as well. Everyone puts in a really natural-feeling performance. And Angelina Jolie and Jude Law, in my opinion, have a tendency to go a little over the top. But they were very natural, very... I just really liked what they brought to the characters. And they... I love that point, Megan, because I think that what they really resonate with is the sensibility of the 30s serial. So they're acting that style in the same way that in Star Wars, it's it's a 30s serial sensibility. The characters talk fast, they um, they react fast. You know, everything is different than our sensibility now. What we consider that kind of subtlety in acting. That's not what we're getting here, and it it shouldn't be. And yeah, you're right. Um, they nail it, which is awesome, you know. And they, um, I think Gwyneth Paltrow too. Like she does um, a fantastic job at that as well. When you were uh, talking about the pre visualization, uh, you know that they did, it made me think of uh, if you've seen any of the behind the scenes on how they did Gravity, mm-hmm. where yeah. they basically in Gravity they built a led cube around the the rig that had sandra bullock you know in her spacesuit and the leds were basically low res pixel mapping a pre-visualization space scene that they had built so as the cameras like swing around her you know 20 degrees and then turning the background the light that's hitting her from this uh, cube is actually matching what will be the inserted shot. It's it's a crazy level of pre-visualization and and basically making your shot before you make your shot, which is almost exactly like what they did. You know, shooting the entire thing with uh, extras and stand-ins before. You know, yeah, they made this film multiple times. It's it's made in a very unconventional way, but I think it's only it's probably the only way it could have been made. I mean, I I don't think without sinking three times the budget into it, you could make this film. Well, that's something that's really interesting too, because it really harkens back to the way Disney would make his animated films, that he would shoot the films live action with characters on stage so that the animators could see the actions of the characters and, and be able to, to mimic them with their, animation and very much the same way that they're doing here i mean you know they're animating the the characters then they're putting them in live action and they're making sure everything is lined up right so that once you shoot that camera that it flows perfectly yeah and i mean seriously what's so crazy is that carrie conran this started he spent four years making a black and white teaser with blue screen that he had set up in his living room on a Macintosh 2, like his personal <laughs> computer, and just software that he had bought online. No, well, obviously not really so much online. You would still go to like a Best Buy or something at that point and buy this stuff. But CompUSA. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> CompUSA. Yeah. What, what's uh, Circuit City? <laughs> if anybody remembers City. Circuit City. Um, <laughs> and he ended up getting a, a chance to show this to producer John Abnett and was so impressed that they spent two years working on the script. And so amazing that, I mean, again, something that's really never been done at that point is being done here where you are going to take a movie and completely create it almost out of nothing. And, and the, on, in the extras, their their thought was, Carrie says, you know, we figured maybe we would just maybe have like five people extra, you know, with with him and some, you know, his brother who is the production designer. And he's like, now I think about it and that's just crazy because um, it took over 100 digital artists, um, multiple, you know, 
years to create all the animatics and their first thought was we'll just do 2d so everything is pictures that we've taken and we'll take those pictures and make matte paintings basically and insert everything into that and by the time they got started and really got going they just they changed everything so they went from 2d backgrounds to 3d backgrounds so even in the middle of the film they completely change how this is going to be done well, and I think the the key phrase you said in that is they like the idea and then they took two years to make the script good. And I think back to your, your statement you said in the very beginning of, well, why don't more people just, you know, crank out these all digital, you know, uh, let's just use CGI, you know, now that the tools are cheaper. Well, they do, but they don't spend two years, you know, perfecting the script. So it's just not that good you know a lot of film of good filmmaking is is limitations is either limitations in what you can put on screen or what you can do and it 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 creates a better product overall so a lot i could see someone falling into this pit of oh i'm just going to create this entire world literally entire world you know in the computer where do you put the camera where do you put the scene are you in a blimp are you in a giant cavern you know it's there's there's it's like it's animation there's there's almost too many choices so i think by you know they knew what they had they had their core idea and then they took the time to finesse the story out and then that's what got the a-list actors that's what got you know the backing and you know and and being able to put the time into their trailer you know they they paid their dues you know and and that is what sold this, this film uh, it's it's just such a great story. This entire process of, you know, a great way to make a film. Uh, you know, not that every film can be made this way, but it's it's an inter- really interesting process. Well, and it would have been really easy for this script to just turn into a pile of contrived cheese. And I think it really shows how much work they put into that script because it's a really solid script. Nobody really says anything that feels unnatural. Um, it's just it's a good thing that they took as long as they did to make that really good because the really strong script coupled with the incredibly well done visual effects just make this a really strong movie all the way through and I think we've seen kind of what happens when you don't really start with story first you just end up with Jupiter ascending (laughs) or the you end up with the immortals or something that's like that where it's just utterly terrible you know you get 50 percent of the way and then it just yeah you don't have enough Mm -hmm. everything feels trite and everything feels done and tropey and and what's so funny here is that everything in this movie is pulled from somewhere else yeah but it's so well done i don't ever feel like oh i'm just watching the the same trope that i've seen over and over oh i'm not i'm just watching the kind of the same characters no everything is imaginative and from the moment this you know the the first thing comes on screen the first scene that you see you're pulled in you know it's a and true homage not yeah, it really it not is. in it done yes. in the proper way mhm well and it it doesn't feel like a pale copy it it just feels like a love letter in the true sense of the word you know i mean um as star trek fans we always talk about the the dismal ending of enterprise and and it being it was supposed to be a love letter to the fans and yet it became it just, a tng two-parter <laughs> exactly um and so this though really does feel like that tr- uh, like a true love letter like somebody who truly gets what they're trying to write to um and i i think that that carrie and his brother kevin um, who was the production designer on the film, they understand what they're writing in this world in very much the way, the same way that I think Spielberg and Lucas really understand these things and helped create the serials that we all grew up with, which were Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and you know, which kind of helped revolutionize filmmaking in the first place. So, um, yeah, it's it's really neat, um, and I'm I'm so glad that um, this kind of movie got made. And I think you're right, Darren. It's just a lot harder than it looks um, to to create something of this kind of quality 
Or you're right, we'd see it all the time. And it's unfortunate that we can't. Um, Megan, you you posted uh, on Facebook today a great article about how um, female characters are leading the um, the box office right now. And when we're recording this, Cinderella is huge. Um, we've had uh, last year uh, Mockingjay Part 1 was enormous. And Divergent uh, that, is currently airing and, and Divergent, doing really well. Insurgent is is huge. And um, we were talking today back and forth on on Facebook and and that it was the storylines of those that are creating people to go see them because it's not whether they're aimed at women and it's not whether they're have women as leads. It's the fact that they're actually good stories. I went and saw Cinderella because I wanted to see it because it looked good. And it turned out to be beyond my expectations good. Um, and that's what I think makes the true hallmark of a film is when people, anybody can go see it and they want to bring other people to it. And so that's what's kept my love for something like Sky Captain around is that I loved the movie and I'm still here and I'm still telling people they need to see it because it's, you know, it's that good. And, people uh, do it's need kinda, to see it. <laughs> Yeah, they, <laughs> they do. Uh, it's kind of sad that uh, the New York Times has been turned into Captain Obvious, um, which is apparently <laughs> Hollywood needs to pay attention to story. Uh, and if you do that, we're probably going to like the movie if it's a good story. So, um, what did you guys, uh, you know, we've talked kind of a lot around this, but just specifically the look of the film. Um that kind of uh, they, they've they actually mastered the movie in black and white so they strip out the color and they do the whole thing in black and white and then um, after everything was layered back then they would finally add that diffused color look that they had um, so it would really have that film noir what did you guys think about how that worked for the movie and, and does it work and does it still hold up I think it was spot on. I don't know. I honestly don't know if I would have enjoyed the movie as much as I did if they hadn't given it such a look. Um, because I think it really lends itself to the atmosphere of the movie. It really lends itself to the comic book nature of the movie. Um, and it's not overdone. It feels natural in, in, this mo- in the film. Um, I loved it. I think they did a great job with the overall visuals all the way down to the costuming it just it all tied in together so so well yeah i think stylization is such a powerful tool that filmmakers can use it can be used well or it can be used poorly Uh, i mean just the next year in 2005 you had sin city which was another you know very very stylized like we wanted to look literally like a graphic novel uh but i can think of you know, many, uh, many films, or even if the entire thing isn't stylized in a, in a particular style, maybe like a flashback is, or like a portion, you know, in another time or, or place. And, you know, now films are changing aspect ratios. I think, uh, was it the Grand Budapest Hotel where like, depending on which yes. time yeah. decade yep. they're in, I'm like, that's, you know, get that out of the box, done. do something different. And, you know, you know, it's, yeah, it's gutsy making your entire movie in a in a kind of a little bit of Vaseline on the lens sepia tone you know because if you don't like it well enjoy the next 90 minutes because that's what it's going to be but I think Sky Captain you know does a really good job you know with that it owns it and it's like this is what it's going to look like and and then it just it works it works for this it knows what it's trying to do uh, I, I mean, I'm glad it's it does have the muted colors. I mean, I think if it had just been black and white, I, I think again, like uh, like the artist, that's very hard to pull off. I agree. Um, because it's I don't know, it's just it didn't need to go that far, and I'm glad they didn't. There is an interesting scene in the extras where they kind of show you the side by side of the black and white, mm. and then the color, and it's the scene when they're in Shangri La. Uh, and, which is an amazing scene. That the, scene looks the great with of, the color in oh, it. Yeah. Um, but the black and white really does look great. I mean, the, because what they were able to do is is to make those those shadows of that noir look really, really pop 
in the black and white and make sure that was where they needed it to be. And then when they add that, you know, that diffused color, that technicolor type of look to it, it really all pulls the the entire scene together, you know, and mm-hmm. it, and because they're compositing that in in those layers and doing it that way, I think it also makes the characters who are real fit into the scenes that are all CGI in a, right. in a way that they wouldn't work if you weren't doing all of that work. And so, I mean, if your um, if your foreground subject, which is real, yes, and your background yeah. don't match perfectly. But if yeah. everything's been given this layer, you know, it's it's like uh, Nat Sound. You know, when you're shooting something in a mall, you record about five minutes of just mall sound. And then you record your people. So that way, when you're chopping up their audio, you can add the natural sound in. So it blankets, you know, the cuts and such. It's the same thing. You know, you, you have the look of your background that's completely fake and the look of your foreground, which is a real person and you have to make those match together otherwise it's it's going to look fake and by embracing that within the tone it it made it work well and so much of black and white filmmaking is in it's in the lighting it's the shadows it's the way you use the shadows um and i think the fact that they approached it the sepia from a black and white point of view is probably what made it work so well because I mean you can't watch a movie like Double Indemnity and not get completely drawn in by the shadowy look of everything and it, this movie made me think of that a lot just because of the lighting that's one of my favorite noir movies well and the and the composition of just the the shots too like you know they didn't they didn't shy away from we're going to show a grand shot yeah you know of of you know shangri-la or the giant rocket base or you know i mean that's you can imagine like when you're reading in the comic that's the full page spread when you turn the page and it's like here's the shot you know and they you know you know not just the look or the color but you know often so many times movies are just ruined by oh well let's just mount this camera on a golden retriever and have it follow our principal subjects <laughs> and it's you know it's not really going to be that fun you think it would be but uh it's it's not it is really cool i think darren you mentioned the idea of having the vaseline on right the the camera which they did in those old days of, of filmmaking they would actually put vaseline because it would kind of blur the image and give it a, a more radiant quality, especially to their female stars, which they were trying to make look as beautiful as possible on screen. And doing that here, I think, just makes it work because, again, it fits with the time period and it draws you in to that moving comic image. It's atmosphere. Um, yeah. It is atmosphere. And like you said, style, it. You know, it makes me think of how The Matrix has a very specific stylized look to it, and they never shy away from it, that this is what this world looks like. Um, And very much in Sky Captain, they're the same way. We're not going to shy away from the fact that this is what this looks like. And I think it's a fantastic idea because... um, It looks so beautiful. Like, you just kind of want screenshots of all these things, you know, for wallpaper on your yeah, computer. Yeah, where's the wallpaper pack? <laughs> exactly, um, because it's so great. And not just that, but I mean, again, we talked about this. The story is so much fun. Like, you're having fun with the characters. You're having fun with the story. It doesn't feel wooden or anything like that. It just feels enjoyable and plucky. And it's not trying to be a part one of, of two. It's, yes. it's going to tell its story, and then it's okay to be done. It's okay that it doesn't have to set up for Sky Captain and the even more tomorrow. You know, I you know, it's like we don't need that. And so many things nowadays like are packaged and contorted and boxed to become part one of whatever because hey, if this works and I'm not saying that's bad. I mean it's it's great to have multiple films of, of great properties, but not everything needs to be a saga or a trilogy or whatever. I do agree, but I would totally watch Sky Captain. Oh, I totally would too. Yeah, if it came out. <laughs> oh yeah, Sky Captain and all our tomorrows. Sky Captain you know? Two, Space and Beyond. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I think maybe sometimes that it works better to make people want a sequel mm. when you tell them a complete story, and then they're like, "Oh, but I want the next story." 
you know, um, and I, I, I feel that very much too. I'm glad you both said that because I really do. I would do anything pretty much to see a, a further adventures. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Jude Law does not look the same at all anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. He has almost no hair now. And um, <laughs> the same thing, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, she could still pull it off. Um, Maybe in the second so movie, exactly all of the... the same. Yeah, Gwyneth pretty much yeah, just she the doesn't same. look that different. Uh, Angelina Jolie doesn't look all that different, you know. So, yeah. you and, Hey, Lawrence Olivier still looks the same. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Maybe um, maybe in the next one, all of the backgrounds will be real and all the people will be digital. And yeah, there you go. <laughs> I wish this movie had made enough movie to at least entertain the idea. It's just too bad because I'm looking at their box office mojo right now and of their $70 million budget yeah. worldwide, they made less than $60 million, So, yeah. I mean, that's just a huge bummer. Why did nobody go see this movie? I felt it was really poorly marketed. I'm yeah. trying to remember back in 2004, and I think it just it, it gave you a little teaser, but the teaser wasn't enough to hook everyone. And and I think a lot of people were like, what is this? And yes, it has a, a an A-list star or two, but it just it it wasn't enough. This was the kind of movie I think that would be better served by don't give me a trailer. Give me two minutes of the actual film. Pick a yeah. good two-minute chunk and just have it end on a bit of a cliff note, and then and then just that's it. Because I've seen trailers work really well for certain pictures like that, where it's like they're not they're not concocting a let's give ninety percent of the plot away trailer. It's it's just showing a portion. I think that would have uh, would have serviced this movie better. You know that you can. And I'll probably put this in the show notes, but you can actually watch the black and white teaser trailer that Carrie made on his Macintosh. And I think if you had done that and then had it kind of transition into color halfway through, you know, that they had done that. Um, like the effects that get was better and better as it progresses. Right. Something like that to really draw people in. I, I, I think that would have worked really well. Um, before we move to cast and characters, what do you guys just think about all of the fun sci-fi type gadgets that we do get in this movie? Because there's a lot of them. There is a lot, yeah. Um, I love all of the different robots. Um, the Iron Giant style ones at the beginning and yeah. then the ones with the uh, spaghetti arms are <laughs> fantastic. And then I love the... Uh, I love the gliders that flap their wings as they fly. Um, really creative stuff. And then I love the little ray gun that um, Giovanni Ribisi gets to play with. Yeah, the ray gun was cool. I really liked the amphibious planes that oh, yes. like, transformed. Although probably the most my suspension of disbelief was stretched as when the propellers on his plane was like pulled into what they just they just f sucked into a black hole in the nose of his plane i'm like they i, I get if they fold down but anyway but uh, no it was it was cool and you know i and it was like of course my plane flies underwater and can have an underwater battle yours doesn't you know I'm, and it just I'm it owned it Batman. so well yeah <laughs> i don't see Batman. Yeah, that he needs is a whole other boat to do this he needs this. a separate yeah. boat yeah, Batman needs to get his crap together. Jeez, <laughs> um, I think yeah, I'm with you, Darren. The the for me, the suspension of disbelief was greatly stretched when their plane is streaking towards the water, and those wings aren't torn straight off. Yeah, right. Talk about they, uh, ignorance of surface tension. Yeah, yeah. but um, you know, it doesn't matter. It it really doesn't. Then that's, a helicarrier comes over the rise, and we're all just like. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, exactly. Give me more alligators. <laughs> Give me a fleet. Oh. <laughs> I want to watch a movie with Angelina Jolie's character flying around on her helicopter. Yes, Frankie was fantastic. Yeah, I want to see Angelina Jolie meet up with um, Nick Fury because they're basically <laughs> husband and wife. I've determined so, now. Yeah, so maybe they have like a um, patch off, you know? like But she needs to have the other the one so the they best. have one left eye and one right eye respectively yes. between the two of them. <laughs> yes. That's brilliant. I, you know, I turned to my wife. I was like, how do you make Angelina Jolie hotter? You give her a pirate patch <laughs> and a uniform and that's how you do it. <laughs> um. 
So cast and characters, I mean, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie, Michael Gambon, Giovanni Ravisi, and the deceased Lawrence Olivier, Sir Lawrence Olivier, which was actually Jude Law's idea uh, to use some archival footage of him to have him be Totenkopf in the film. Which, which is an awesome gosh. bad guy name. It's yeah. Just, it's such Seriously. a good bad guy name. <laughs> So awesome. Um, what did you guys think about this cast and the characters they play? Well, I didn't even realize the whole Lawrence Olivier thing. I was, But I was sitting there staring at him like, who is that? I know who that is. And now that you've said that, I can't believe I didn't recognize him. But that's brilliant. Yeah, I didn't make the connection either that it was... Uh, you know, a deceased actor, you know, not since Gladiator have we infused a film yeah. with uh, as much acting uh, on someone who's who's passed away. But uh, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, Jula has been in a lot of good stuff, you know, that's kind of edgy like this. I think of Gattaca, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of other pictures, you know, he's been in and, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, who looks the same as mm-hmm. she does now. Uh, but yeah, and Angelina Jolie, which you know, she had a really tiny role, but you know, she I think rocked it. she did. And, and they, but they needed a list people. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in, in another age and time, you would have tried to make this not with a list. And, and it's just in the movies, you, you have to have a big name to get butts in the seats. And I think they had a good equation. They had a good shot. It, it didn't quite pan out for other, other reasons, but I think they had, they had the right people and these people you could tell enjoyed being there. They wanted to be in this what you had to, cause they had to create a ton of it in their head, you know, while they're acting. Yeah. And I think this, uh, this cast really lends itself to the larger than life atmosphere that they've been putting forth through the whole movie. Um, I love seeing Michael Gambon, even though he wasn't in it for yes. a, a lot of the movie, but he was fantastic in the few scenes that he had. And then uh, Giovanni Ribisi shows up on screen, and I'm just writing exclamation parts on my notepad because I love Giovanni Ribisi. I love it when he shows up and stuff. He's just fantastic. He's an underrated actor. I love him so much. Well, it was really cool in the extras. John Avent, uh, who's the producer, was saying, because this was Carrie's first film, he really got to cast the movie. And so he would come to Carrie and say, uh, what do you think about Jude Law, you know, or Gwyneth Paltrow or any of these people? And Carrie's first response was always, we, we, we can actually get them. Right. <laughs> you know? Oh, like, yeah. And, yeah. Um, because you wouldn't necessarily put them in a, in a film like this. I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow had just won a freaking Oscar before she did this movie. So, I mean, you have an Oscar winner in your presence in this film. And um, I, I think that... Uh, Megan, you really uh, hit it on the head that these people have a desire to be here and they're acting their hearts out in the film and you can tell that they're just having the best time. Well, and that's, and that's what good, makes it work. Well, and that's another good reason, you know, why you want to take the time and make a really good script because a really good script can sell an A-list actor to be in your picture, to I, to take a lesser salary, to take you know i mean to take a risk to take a risk you know it's their and it's their time you know it's it's not booking other projects while they're doing your project i mean it's everything's always a calculation at, at some point and while this movie was able to be shot in a fraction of the time you know as far as the actors were concerned uh you know it's still you know you you have to turn down other projects so you you better enjoy it and you better like it well and one of the things that um as we mentioned like female films earlier and those kind of being the lead right now with uh, Hollywood, I thought that this movie did a great job of one of the tropes that they don't go to is the the female damsel in distress mm. that you would get in the Buck Rogers comics of these time periods um, that both Polly and Frankie are strong women and Polly has some of the tropes of a female character that time period and in some ways she doesn't and so that it's it's like a mixture of the 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 past and the present and I felt like she did a better job of representing her and Frankie do of of something that uh, women could more respect as they're watching this film and not be like ugh. Yeah, not this again. Yeah, I can say that's one. I only went, oh, not this again, at one point during the movie. And it was all of the stuff about 
Gwen Paltrow, Polly having to take her shoes off and on throughout the whole thing. Um, that drove me a little bit crazy because <laughs> there's nothing I hate more than comments about ladies in their shoes. But um, yeah, Frankie Angelina Jolie's character in particular was just, you know, she's leading this airship. She's in charge of an all-female amphibious unit. Um, she was just fantastic and I love that they just rolled with it and that's just how this world is. There's ladies in charge and no one's questioning anybody. Well, and, and yeah, and Polly, she, she's Lois Lane. I mean, she's definitely yeah. channeling a Lois definitely. Lane vibe. Uh, and yeah, and the more I think about it, you know, Angelina Italy is, is Nick Fury. She is. Yeah. She's Nicolette Fury. Nicolette Fury. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it was cool, too, because, you know, with with Polly doing the whole Lois Lane thing, I mean, it's it's her that ends up kind of saving the day in some ways, because if she hadn't been there to save Jude Law's character, Joseph, Sky Captain, you know. Um, Did you give yourself that name, Joe. Joseph? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I totally Joe. didn't. My yeah. adoring fans no. called me that. Uh, yeah, Joe Sullivan. Um you know, she hadn't been there to save him. Um, he wouldn't have been there to save the rest of the world, you know. Uh, and so I just, I liked the way that it, it, it came to them working together in the end. And it was, Saving it was very funny. Saving the world by proxy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, yeah. Um, and uh, too, I, I loved the uh, illusion of the, the sword of Democles right above them, their heads. It just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that talk about uh, hitting a little on the nose if, if you know what you're looking for. Um, I thought that was funny as well. So, yeah, I like the giant arc rocket. Oh, God, so was, cool. That was thing so was really cool. neat. Yeah. yeah. And and I also love the, I think, if I remember it correctly, the, the, when they're looking at the gauges and, like, for a moment it flashes to English and it's like yes, you realize that yep. they're reading it. And, like, that's so smart because it's like, yes, it should all be not written in English, but, yes, you also need to show, you know, what it actually means to the characters. And, and that's a great, you know, visual showing, not telling, not – Oh yes, I recognize what this is. No, don't talk. Just show that little flash, and it's a, it's a great shot. It's it's one of my favorite shots. That is a neat little shot. I it, I remember it jumping out at me when I was watching it last night. What did you guys think of uh, the music in the movie? Because I I feel like you know if you're gonna do it an adventure serial type film you need great music we've all been spoiled with a john williams doing indiana jones or star wars <laughs> he can't do everything and, but yeah he, he may can't. as well and, have done this one though i mean the score is perfect and yeah. it yeah at moments i was like are we sure this isn't john williams because it sounds like john williams wrote the score well and this one is edward Shearmer. And he's done a few other things out there that people might recognize. You can go look them up on IMDb. But yeah, I feel like the fact that, you know, it's a march at the beginning and the music is vibrant and happy and fun. And uh, it, it just makes you feel like you want to go out and fly a plane and conquer the world. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it needed. And I loved that at the end, the movie closes out with uh, Over the Rainbow. Um with uh, Jane Monette, uh, who's an American jazz singer who just really rocks that song as well. Um, even though it's a stretch to have The Wizard of Oz in this movie because it wasn't really released at this point yet, but they're fudging Giant it, so. robots. Yeah. There yeah, are whatever. giant <laughs> robots in this movie. Just just saying. Uh, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. I can let And it as go. someone pointed out, it's a very idealized future because if this is supposedly 1939, uh, yeah, Germany does not look like they're preparing for war. You know, America does not look like they're coming you know, out of a depression, but, uh, yeah, but it's, but no, yeah, point, point taken. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. This is, this is what we wish the future had looked like at that point. Um, or I guess the past, but I'm still waiting to fly around on giant airships. So you're a blimp fan. You just, you want to hit up the, the bigger blimp. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you I know, fringe cool. is one of my favorite shows. I love how on the other side, they all fly around in their blimps. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine having to try and have, uh, you know, a garage that fit your blimp, you know, at your house? That'd just be so impractical. You don't need a garage. You just need to tie it off. Uh, that's true. <laughs> hope it, it doesn't fly your, away. Your roof. Hope, hope the wind doesn't pick up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Uh, well, guys, uh, 
final thoughts on uh, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow and uh, your rating, and then maybe if your plore for why people should see this if they haven't seen it yet. Well, I I just really enjoyed it. Um, I'm really glad I finally saw it. I'm disappointed I didn't see it sooner. If you haven't seen it, see it. You're missing out if you haven't. And uh, for my rating, I think I will give it three Hindenburgs out of three. That, I think, is a good rating. <laughs> but not on fire. Just, you know, yeah. three solid, yeah. Yeah. fully functioning yeah. Hindenburgs. <laughs> three safe-to-fly Hindenburgs. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little stamp on them. Yeah. They've been certified by uh, inspector number three. Uh, yeah, no, Sky Captain, World of Tomorrow, great film, definitely worthy of a view. Uh, I definitely give it uh, five giant British airships out of five. Uh, but yeah, but, you know, if if anything we've been saying, you know, strikes you as being at least remotely up your alley, whether it's a stylized piece, something of the 30s, something that's linked to any of the other films, you know, we've referenced, uh, give it a watch. I mean, uh, what, at the worst, you've you've missed, you know, 90 plus minutes of your evening, but it's it's really worth it. It's a lot of fun. And I think at the very end, you're, you'll be like us and you'll wish for a sequel. I, I mean, you guys just have nailed it on the head. I, I just, I can't really, there's just, if you haven't seen this movie, go see it. it, it I, I can't stress enough how much I think that you'll just enjoy it. Go in expecting fun and nothing more. And, you know, sometimes I really am frustrated when movies are nothing more than fun but I think this one, it, it is quite okay that it is just fun. And um, this is a movie that I have loved since it came out. And so I hope that uh, this that we will have inspired other people that maybe haven't seen this movie uh, to go and find it and, and love it themselves. And if you have seen this movie, just to go pop it back in in your, you know, um, your player or, you know, streaming or whatever because um, you forgot how much fun it was and we've reminded you and now you need to go out and see it again. Um, and so to complete the ratings, I think I'm going to give this uh, five out of five eye-patched Frankies. Uh, so, uh, well, guys, uh, it has been just an absolute blast talking about sky captain in the world tomorrow today with you but it is not the only thing that we have been talking about here on trek fm the past week so here is a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit it's not an overstatement and you had said in your introduction that without Without him and his hand guiding all of this, then then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was. And if it had not been successful, then it, it you know it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey, like I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to like walk around the corner and be like Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kidamir yep. Quartz. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about, so you would think they would have run into each other. They probably least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! <laughs> the Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched and, and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of. The Wrath of Khan. The Wrath of Khan was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, The Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. I've always liked the... uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss Droids in Distress and Fight or Flight and everything like that, and I was just kind of watching the background, but all of a sudden I started catching myself, like, stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching. 
and uh, and so it just got better and better and better and i think i was hooked by episode four breaking rings that's when i was like okay i like this show this is good warp five in the history of axanar alec peters and christian gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the arcanus campaign and in the arcanus campaign a majority of starfleet ships were destroyed and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You will find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you didn't know this, a majority of people get their podcasts from iTunes. And if you can help us out in a great way by subscribing to those podcasts on iTunes and giving us star ratings and reviews, that really helps out the show. We move up the rankings and it helps us be more visible for people when they search for podcasts in iTunes. And so help us out that way. But if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can get our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. Megan, I love having you here on the show. I'm so glad that we were able to to get you to be on and to be on for a movie that you'd never seen before and you ended up loving it. I did, yeah. We did this educating geek style. It's just like over at my home podcast. <laughs> well, tell everybody where they can find you online and about your podcast, Educating Geeks. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Meg Calcote. And if you want to find out more about the podcast that I do with my group of friends called Educating Geeks, you can go to educatinggeeks.com. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, Tumblr, and we have an Instagram now. And uh, like I said, this is kind of what we do every week. We find a topic that somebody somewhere has never, a movie they haven't seen, a game they've never played, a TV show they've never watched, and we get that person to do the thing they haven't done and then we all talk about it um and it's a lot of fun darren i love having you here it's it's just been a blast getting to talk this with you tell everybody where they can find you online and the network well on the network on trek fm i co-host our star trek the next generation podcast earl gray with my co-host daniel prue and philip gilfis so you can find us on earl gray enjoying a nice brew on the enterprise 1701d every week and uh, you can find me online on Twitter under username Dr. Sci-Fi. That's D-R-S-C-I-F-I. And hoping to be launching my third podcast ever this next month. So stay tuned for that. We'll be posting about that at uh, DrSciFi.com. I love Earl Grey. It's one of my favorite Trek FM shows. I'm a TNG lady, so I listen uh, to you a lot. Awesome. Thank you. Well, another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, you'll find all the current goals, uh, milestone contribution levels there that we have for you. They come with some amazing perks. Uh, you can get early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on the content development team, and more. Guys, I want to just thank you so much for all of you who do support us this way. We are a listener-supported network. Without you, it really would be impossible to do this with all the costs that go into creating podcasts, keeping them uh, on the air with the fact that we have to have storage and all that kind of stuff. So really appreciate all you do for us. And again, you can find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We did have a great new five-star review on iTunes from Kenneth Tripp. I wanted to say thank you to him. I really appreciate him spending that time writing that great review. It, it meant a lot to me. And, of course, Kenneth Tripp is one of our associate producers here on the 602 Club, so I'd like to thank him for his support there, as well as Norman Lau, who is my other associate producer. His Twitter account is Norman Lau, just at Norman Lau. And, of course, he's on the network there on warp five he's the host and you can also find him on the star trek axonar project online because he's a huge supporter of that on their facebook page and the babel conference if you'd like to contact us just go to trek.fm slash contact you can leave a voicemail in the sidebar on the show page on any page on the website plus 
You can also go to speakpipe.com slash truckfm, and we'd love to have a voice film up for you. That would be so much fun. We might even play it on the show. We're on Twitter at trekfm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And then, of course, we have the listeners-only discussion group, which is the best place to have Star Trek discussions with us here on the network. Um, so much fun. Some of the best discussions you'll ever have that I've ever had online about Star Trek. So we hope you'll join us there. Just search the Babel Conference there on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. And of course, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me doing Literary Treks with Dan, where we do the books and the comics of Star Trek. You can find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively. And I do have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 